Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville. I'm Al Hunt. Thanks for joining us. This week we are joined by Admiral James Stavridis. I mean, this is really, this is really a guest, James. He's a former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, and man, he's got more honors and oh, done more things than than most people we've ever known. Remember, we take your questions each episode, so write in a politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can. Don't forget, tell us where you're from. And please check out the link to this week's sponsor, Magic Spoon. We love Magic Spoon. Check out the links in the show notes. We thank you for supporting our sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, James, let's start with the issue of crime. Violent crime, declining for years, has seen an uptick in the final Trump years and indications of a surge this year in big cities, at least, New York, Chicago. And Republicans, while decrying this, are actually celebrating. They see this as a big winner for them. It strikes me it's a legitimate worry that Democrats are divided and even incoherent on this. There's still a defund the police uh part of that of the of the democrats not very big but they make a lot of noise that's not a very welcome message in a crime surge no it's not and it it is a small minority of the democratic party and we have to uh, if anybody wants to do anything you know we all complain about the 94 crime bill we'll look at the crime 10 years before that passed and then 10 years after it and, you know, maybe there are some things in there in, in some of the sentencing stuff was was ad- admittedly uh, harsh. But, uh, you know, if we'd have kept the assault weapons ban, I guarantee you that there'd have been a lot less people dead today. And the Democrats have to be very aggressive because, remember, we had declining crime rates in this country from the early 90s up until the last year of Trump's administration. It's always been Democrat-run cities, or as they call it, Democrat-run cities. And what changed is Trump and his lawlessness and his sort of green light for everybody else to be lawless. And I, I think the Democrats have to be aggressive on this issue, not talk around it, not pivot, not use of another attack, but go right at it and go right at Trump and Republican complicity and and what's going on in this country right now. And it's it's bad. Yeah, I agree. And Jim, this is about walking and chewing gum at the same time. In crime areas, uh, there should be talk about more police, more protection. At the same time, we need better trained, more sensitive police, more sensitive communities they serve, and to hold them legally accountable for bad behavior. I mean, you can do both. You can have more police and better police and more accountability. And I'll tell you, if the Democrats don't do that, they're going to be behind the eight ball on what could become a really, really inflammatory issue. Completely agree. And there is utterly no reason that you can't, you know, improve policing. Well, you know, and look, some, 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 some of these cities are just understaffed. they got to be brought up to, to the level. But if you, if you don't do that, if you don't talk about it and you don't do it, you're going to pay a price at the ballot box. So you don't have any other choice but to do this. Well, not so, only that, but um, you know, a number of the defund the police uh, represent uh, advocates r- represent minority communities. They're the ones that are being hit by crime waves. They're the <laughs> ones that are suffering. They're the ones that are being victimized. They're the ones that need more but better protection. Yeah. Uh, hello, Mayor Adams. 
Yes. Look, look at look at where his vote came from. Right. Okay. And, and you know, a lot of these, and I try to say this as honestly and delicately as I can, but a lot of the more progressive people, I, I, I'm sure that they respect everybody because that's the nature of extreme progressivism. But but they're actually contemptuous of a majority of the black voters. They didn't like that Biden, you know, who got overwhelmingly nominated with overwhelming support from the African-American community, the same could be true, said of Eric Adams, of other people. And they don't like choice. They just ignore the wishes and the priorities of the actual black voter. Yep. And it's a, it's, it's a, it's a kind of arrogance that, that needs to be pointed out to people. It does. Uh, James, let me turn to another issue where I think arrogance needs to be pointed out to people, and that's the January 6th commission. It is appalling. It is appalling that it's taken the House six months to start a commission a, to look into the most violent mob assault on the United States Capitol in history, one that tried to overturn a legitimate election that Trump lost. This is a searing indictment of Republicans who are petrified to offend Trump, who incited that mob. You know, what I was reading, and, and you, you understand this better than I do, what Pelosi and Schumer offered the Republicans, I think was like, it's, it's unbelievable. I, I wouldn't, They were going to have equal subpoena power. They were going to have everything. And then the Republicans voted it down. Right. And now they have this. I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I'm kind of, Kind of pissed that, you know, Pelosi, who I worship, and, 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 you know, Schumer was like one of the hardest working, diligent guys ever. They were going to give him the store to get this. Right. And these idiots didn't take it. Well, that's a simple reason. They don't want to do anything that offends Donald Trump. He dominates everything that they do. But now, now, James, this is what I love. This is was was in, on CNN and other places today. Kevin McCarthy's strategy, now that he's going to appoint Republican members, is to blame it on. Now, are you ready for this, James? He's going to blame it on. I, this is I know, James. This is going to really, really shock you. He's going to blame it on Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> there, there, okay. there is no big lie they won't resort to. You know, Kevin McCarthy, I once sort of thought was a shrewd conservative, not very deep, but at least shrewd. But he believes in nothing. He will always put his political interest ahead of the country. And in looking at Republican speakers over almost seven decades, John Boehner is a giant, a political Paul Bunyan compared to the rest. Newt Gingers, the most ethically challenged speaker in history, only one to be sanctioned by the House. Dennis Hastert, a sexual pervert. Paul Ryan, who didn't want the job and got trumped. And now McCarthy, a cipher. I'll tell you something. Whatever yeah. our criticisms of John Boehner, he looks awful good in that group. But first of all, never... Evan, forget to mention, Dennis Hassan, the longest-serving Republican speaker in history. Right. All right? And and convicted pervert. Pervert, right. I right. did. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Now, you said that, but just, yeah. just, I'm just adding right. that kind of thing. We, gotta, we ought to give, you know, honorifics where honorifics are due, <laughs> uh, for, for sure. You know, so Kevin McCarthy— for a long time, I don't know if I ever met him, but people would say, yeah, you know, James, he's just a really political guy. He likes to, you know, look at districts and swing districts, and he reads everything, and he's, he's kind of personable if you knew him. And, yeah, he's, you know, Republican, but he's not ideological. 
Well, he, what he is, he, he is not ideological. He is just a really weak man, mm-hmm. really weak. I mean, that, that's all he is. I, I mean, totally. no other word is right. No. And I'm, I'm sure at some level, if he wants to be, he can be affable and charming. But he is, at, at his core, a very weak man. No, I spent a bunch of time with him about 10 years ago, and you're absolutely right. He is, he is interesting. He's fun. He's engaged. He you know, has encyclopedic knowledge of, of congressional districts. He deserves credit for their 2010 um, landslide victories. But I'll tell you something. He is weak. As I said, he is just a cipher. You know, one, uh, one other thing, the Supreme Court upheld the Arizona restrictive voting laws this week. And at the end of the session, it really does underscore that for all the navel-gazing about how this court may not be as conservative as advertised and, un- and it really is unpredictable, when it comes to political and moneyed power, this is a Republican court that will protect those interests. And it just underscores the absolute criticality, I may have made that word up, of the Senate passing a voter protection bill, Joe Manchin's bill, and then getting the best lawyers, our friends Seth Waxman and Walter Dellinger, to defend it because it's going to be a bloody battle. Well, again, this court, the press is, and our friend Walter Dellinger really got this, they're pathetic. Okay, that's the only one. They took the head fake. This court has never, ever, singularly, one time, voted against Republican political power or corporate monetary power. Right. If you don't understand that, and oh, they'll give you a head fake on, 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 they don't care about gay, gay marriage. It's the last thing they care about. What they care about is having Republicans in power to protect, protect corporations from making as much money as they possibly can while paying their employees as little as they possibly can. That's all, that's all they're about. They're about, at their core, that's who they are. And if you don't understand that, and, and that's Roberts, and that's Alito, and, and that's Kavanaugh, and that's Gorsuch, and that's Barrett. That's as dim to their core. And don't forget Byron Thomas. <laughs> You're absolutely right. right. Yeah, it is. It's sorry, a... I'm sorry, Justice Thomas. I, I've, I've really meant to lump you in there. <laughs> well, uh, let's just let's just hope at some time before Labor Day that this Joe Manchin bill gets enacted uh, into law. And I, I think it's fair to call it the Joe Manchin bill because that's what it will be at the end. James, I, I, I want to go with just one more thing before we move on. As we've been predicting every week, there will emerge a new slime or crime committed by Donald Trump that we didn't know, know about before. Two books. Uh, Michael Wolff claims that Trump wanted to call off the 2020 election using COVID as an excuse. And Michael Bender reports that in an argument with his chief of staff, John Kelly, Trump praised Hitler for reviving the German economy and wondered why we joined the Allies in World War II. I don't have a lot of confidence in Michael Wolff, frankly, but though that, that anecdote rings true. But I work with Michael Bender. He's a terrific reporter, and I have no doubt the Trump-Hitler remarks are true. The question, James, is will it matter? Does it register? Hey, let's take General Kelly. So he's a four-star General, by the way, he 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 just really really defamed uh, Congresswoman from Florida, it, it, terribly mistaken, and didn't have the courage to admit it. All right, that that let's start that. The second thing is, why didn't you quit? Walk out. Right? Like- you you were working for a guy. 
that that would not go to honor the people that fall, fell at Bella Wood. You were working for a guy that thought that Hitler was doing a good things, and you knew all of that, and you stayed on. I I I don't know what's wrong with it. Are you surprised? And now, of course, he says he's the most flawed person he's ever seen in his life. Well, why didn't you quit before Trump fired you? That that's that's the question. You're a four-star Marine Corps general, man. Exhibit some courage. Yeah. Uh, well, I couldn't agree more. And but I still worry that this is just not going to register. That people are locked in. And I mean, this is amazing. I mean, I, I just just imagine for a second that Bill Clinton or Barack Obama or Joe Biden or any Democrat you want oh, in a moment, you know, somehow said, "Well, Hitler did some good things." My God, their career would be over that day. Oh, oh well, just think if, if Bernie Sanders said, "Well, there were good parts about Stalin." Right, right. Okay. Oh. I, 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 but, but some of this is like, in, in, in the most insightful thing that Donald Trump has ever said in his entire life, and it has turned out to be the truest words to ever come out of any politician's mouth. I could shoot somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue, and it would not matter. Well, this is the acid test. He was test. right. The Hitler-loving former president. Oh, they, okay. They, don't care. They, they like Hitler. You shitting me? <laughs> you think they're upset by that? He's he's exciting the base. Well, we're gonna we're gonna move on. We have a fabulous guest coming up. Hey, James, we are in rare air, actually high seas with our guest today, uh, Admiral James Stavridis, the former NATO Supreme Allied Commander in charge of forces, the NATO forces in Afghanistan. Uh, he was former dean of the Fletcher School of Diplomacy at Tufts. He has done so much. He is the co-author of the most thrilling novel I have read in a long, long time, 2034, A Military Conflict Between China and the United States. Admiral, we're delighted to have you on this podcast. You are a prolific author. You've written, I think, eight or nine other books. I think this, however, is your first novel. What was the inspiration? Uh, first of all, Alan, James, thank you for having on. It's my honor to be with you. Um, I, I often say that I came to write a novel about the future in 2034, obviously 10 to 15 years in the future. I came to write a novel about the future by looking at the past. And what I mean by that is I look back at the Cold War between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, and there was this rich body of literature, both film and novels. So think On the Beach by Neville Shute, Dr. Strangelove, Failsafe, The Bedford Incident. The three of us are actually old enough to remember all of that. Yeah. I think those novels and those films helped prevent a hot war between the U.S. and the Soviet Union because... They allowed us to imagine how terrible it would be if the U.S. and the Soviets stumbled into a Cold War. So back to the present, when I look at China, I feel we are moving into a Cold War with China, yet there is no comparative body of literature that says, hey, U.S., hey, China, wake up. If you don't, you may stumble into this war, which will be to neither nation's interest and it'll be 1914 all over again. Let's avoid that. 
Yeah, you know, the heroine, uh, one of the her heroines in your book, I guess really the heroine, is Admiral Sarah Hunt. I claim her now as a relative, uh, Admiral. <laughs> I but know. I named her after you, So I, 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 I want to make that. sure she's doing well down in, down in New Mexico or wherever she is now. But it, it does center, as you say, around this conflict. In the, in the nonfiction world, is that the world's greatest threat when you look at the future? I think it is, Al, and, and I'll tell you why. It is because in the South China Sea, U.S. forces and Chinese forces are nose to nose all the time. These are disputed waters. China claims essentially the entire South China Sea, a vast body of water, by the way, half the size of the United States, as territorial seas. It's a preposterous claim. The U.S. pushes back on it. Uh, so we're in conflict about territoriality, pretty fundamental. And finally, because the young people in these ships and flying the aircraft are relatively inexperienced. They're in their 20s and 30s. They're out there banging around in a destroyer, flying a jet, doing what they think is the best they can do for their country on both sides, U.S. and China. That's a pretty volatile mix and I worry about a miscalculation that causes a spark that leads to a skirmish, and skirmishes lead to battles, and battles lead to wars. Well, read 2034, and you will even appreciate that more. Do you see China now as emboldened, and how much have they, have they increased their naval capacity? It used to be 10, 15 years ago, we thought, okay, they're an important economic power, they're building militarily, but we have a far greater naval superiority. Is that, is that margin lessening? Uh, it beyond lessened. Uh, there are now more Chinese-commissioned warships than there are in the U.S. Navy. To give you the numbers, the U.S. has around 300. China has 360. Now, assuredly, ours are bigger, more capable, more endurance, more nuclear-powered. We have vastly more experience operating them globally. So I'd still say advantage to the United States by a margin. But in terms of numbers of ships, that has flipped over the last 10 years, and the trends are in the wrong direction. China is building 10 to 15 warships a year. We're building five to seven in a good year. I'm going to turn to your fellow naval marine, uh, not officer, because he sure as hell wasn't an officer. Uh, <clears throat> just a minute, one final question. I, I'm not going to. I'm not going to anyway wreck the uh, the plot of the outcome in 2034 because everybody out there ought to read it. It really is incredible. I got scared towards the end. I had to pinch myself and say I'm reading a novel. But one thing that struck me is we have this incredibly advanced technology and changes. And as you talk about inexperienced people uh, in airplanes and in ships, that, that worries me that that even increases the risk. It does indeed. And uh, principally, these are in cyber, in space, both surveillance and weapons based in space, undersea capability, hypersonic cruise missiles, all that's coming. And what will land on top of it is a big advance in computers. Uh, the so-called uh, quantum computing is coming. All of that can potentially create even more opportunity for mischief out there. Um, again, the novel is a cautionary tale. The idea is read it and weep and say to yourself, we can still avoid this. We can still reverse engineer back to the present and avoid this kind of outcome. Let's hope so. 
James. So, Admiral, after the, in the 80s, we were treated to a lot of hype about the Soviet Navy, and they had this many ships, and we needed a 600-ship Navy. And I think most naval historians would look back at the Soviet Navy in the early to mid-80s and say, you know, it really wasn't that good. <laughs> right? I mean, it's one thing to have a ship. It's another thing to have officers, you know, that know how to handle it, to have the kind of technical skill that, that technicians and, and, and seamen and petty officers need to run a ship. Do you—is the Chinese Navy—I know it's becoming bigger—is it becoming more proficient? It is gradually, but you know, as the saying goes, it takes 10 years to get 10 years of experience. This is why we set the novel 2034, roughly 15 years into the future from when we began writing it. I think that's the moment where the Chinese Navy will have not only the numbers, but enough experience to be vastly more dangerous to the United States. Again, out there on the battlefield today with the US Navy, US Marine Corps, I would pick the hand of cards that the U.S. Admiral is playing. Fifteen years from now, I think it's an open question. So let's talk a little about Marine Corps, which is my branch, is part of the Naval Service. And as you know, the Tulane guy, General Vargas, the commandant, is, as I understand, is trying to reorient the Marine Corps' mission as an amphibious fighting force and more in conjunction with the Navy as opposed to some of the stupidity we were doing in, 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 in Vietnam, or which I'm a Vietnam-era vet, not, not a Vietnam War vet. Do, do you think the general is on to something in terms of the, the mission of the Marine Corps? Uh, short answer, yes. I'll unpackage that in one second. I just want right. to inform you of my Marine Corps roots. I grew up in the Marine Corps in the Vietnam era. My dad was a proud colonel of Marines who fought in World War II, Korea, Vietnam. I went to Quantico High School. That's how Marine I am. And uh, I went off to Annapolis to become a Marine, James, except what happened to me was the first time they put me on a destroyer and sent me out into the Pacific Ocean, I was like St. Paul on the road to Tarsus. The scales <laughs> dropped from my eyes and I wanted to be a sailor. Um, so let's, let's pick up on Dave Berger, who I know well, the current commandant of the Marine Corps. He is brilliant and he is very correctly saying the Marine Corps has been absorbed in these forever wars in Vietnam, in Iraq. They have fought with immense heroism in both of those contests, but now it's time to come back to sea because our new opponents in this era are going to be China or Russia, and we need a Marine Corps. So snapshot, what Commandant Berger is talking about is not only putting Marines back on the ships, but then deploying them from the ships in kind of mini island hopping campaigns to sabotage Chinese infrastructure. It is a very smart play, particularly against these artificial islands that China is building in the South China Sea. And in the Navy, we don't call them artificial islands. We call them unsinkable aircraft carriers. You put a bunch of marine raiders against those things, surface-to-surface -surface missiles, high-speed transport, very lethal. So you mentioned your dad, he served in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. And it, it, when I was in the Marine Corps, there were a lot of, like, E-7s, E-8s, E-9s that had served in all three, too. And they all, to a person, said the same thing, fuck it, I don't want to go back to Korea. 
I mean, the Korean War is kind of forgotten, but the people that had to fight that had to fight it remember it pretty damn good, yeah, yeah, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> they they do. And a, a, a marvelous book about it is the Coldest War, which kind of summarizes people's memories. I remember talking to my father about it, and he just remembers being bone chilled. He was That's a second lieutenant, remember. first lieutenant, uh, up on those ridges. Really, a hard fight for the Corps. Right. It, it, that, that, like I'm saying, it, these guys remember that. I, I mean, no, no one wants any war, and they're all horrible, and they're all hard. But they remember being cold in Korea. I can tell you that. <laughs> so the, uh, this is a kind of off-the-wall question, but you, you talked in your book about the pub pilot in the Suez, and you didn't give him, you know, cigarettes. You gave him a cap, and he was unhappy, and how a, a, a lieutenant saved your career by telling you. He said, go this way, that way. It, it, I, is harbor pilots a giant scam around the world where you have to, like, go in? In Louisiana, I'm, literally, these guys make three-quarters of a million dollars a year. There's a story about what a, in every harbor that you go into that I know of in the world, you have to hire a local guy at a— it, and maybe that was necessary when you had single screws and you didn't have— I mean, can't a, a good ship driver take a, a, a ship in almost any harbor in the world right now without a lot of danger? Absolutely. And uh, it is, I don't want to say it's a scam. There are very professional pilots, um, but for warships, for U.S. Navy warships, we're perfectly capable of handling those ships and putting them in and out of wherever we need to go. Occasionally, I've turned to a pilot for local knowledge, what's the current like this time of the evening. But these days, all that is banked online. It's available. Um, and frankly, there's levels of corruption you see from these pilots in many places. Um, having said all that, I, I, the pilots in the United States, those are uh, outstanding professionals, oh. typically former naval officers. We're talking other parts of the world. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, right. difficulty that I've run into with pilots here and there. Right. No, they, I mean, the guys in Louisiana are good. I mean, they, they yeah. got to draw the river. Absolutely. I mean, they got to know where everything is. I'm, I'm not, and, and, you know, maybe with the Mississippi, is a little trickier because you got difference in how It changes water, all water, the time. It changes bit. all the time. And, and as you know well, as a Delta guy, uh, you know, the Mississippi can look completely different uh, Three weeks oh, right. later on, after a, a big storm blows through, for example, can't, can't, I'll tell you where the pilots are very good. James are Panama Canal pilots, very capable, very well trained. Panamanians, uh, we flipped the canal over back in the day, and a lot of people said, "Oh, the Panamanians aren't going to be able to run this thing." Wrong. They're doing a very good job. You know, I'll turn it over. You know, I'll just make a statement. I think you'll agree with me, Admiral. Jimmy Carter got a ton of grief for the Panama Canal thing. It's really, it, it, it's his most visionary thing. I mean, and of course, 100%. once Reagan got into office, he just kind of <laughs> forgot about it because it was, it, they were, that was a that was a 99 to 1 decision. Yeah, and James, let's not forget he got it because Howard Baker, the Republican leader, supported him. And, and I can't imagine that occurring today, but you're, you're sorry. I just imagine, Admiral, if, if we hadn't have done that. I know. Uh, it's, wow. Yeah, yeah. Let me ask you, you were in charge of the NATO effort in Afghanistan, or you oversaw it. After almost 20 years, we're leaving. What do you see ahead for this troubled country? Um, I see uh, very dangerous waters ahead. And, and frankly, we've seen this movie before a couple of times. One uh, in Vietnam, 
where we pulled out in 72, 73, pulled the troops out. We continued to fund the Vietnamese military for another couple of years. When the funding cut off, the whole effort collapsed. That was uh, the first time we saw the movie. The second time was during the Cold War with the Soviets in uh, Afghanistan. In 89, they pulled out the Soviet armed forces, but again, they provided funding, maintained some stability. When they cut off the funding, when the wall fell and the funding went away and the Soviets went away, there were no Soviets anymore, uh, that was the end of the Najibullah regime in Afghanistan. So that's the second time we've seen the movie. So in my view, here's the lesson. I get all the reasons for getting out of Afghanistan at this moment, but the same things that brought us there, concern about an ungoverned space, possible terrorist operations, and the reversal of what I think are some pretty important changes to the lives of Afghans, particularly women and girls, um, all that is highly at risk. So here's my prescription, and I've, I've made this case to the administration at a number of levels. Look at the first two times we've seen the movie. What we ought to learn here is if we continue to provide the financial support, the over-the-horizon capability, the diplomatic support, I think we got a, I don't know, a one in three chance of keeping the wheels on the car. I think it's still two in three to answer your fundamental question, two in three chance the wheels come off. We're back in a civil war. All those advances are gone and potentially terrorism resurfaces. Not a pretty picture. Boy, that sure is not. You know, you are a very articulate advocate for what you call smart power. Uh, and this is you know, a little bit of a, di of a digression. And I think this is the greatest country in the world. I can wave my uh, American flag on the 4th of July and cheer USA, USA at the Olympics. But Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, it doesn't look like a very good use of smart power. Yeah. We have not managed to balance both hard power, that's kinetic combat, bombs, rockets, troops, and tanks with soft power, which is the uh, medical diplomacy, the humanitarian work, the human rights advocacy. The Joe Nye stuff, yeah. The Joe Nye stuff, and, and we need to give Joe Nye credit for this. Um, the idea is to blend the two. You're never gonna win just with hard power, and as Joe Nye has said, you know, soft power without the ability to apply hard power is no power. That's mm -hmm. a pretty good line. Um, so what we need is to blend the two. I'd call it smart power. And I'll give you two examples of where we have done it successfully in the recent past. We tend to focus on the three examples you gave. How about Colombia? In Colombia, a terrible insurgency ripping that country apart. And instead of sending down the 82nd Airborne and 150,000 troops, we applied a blend of hard and smart power. This was Plan Columbia, bipartisan effort. Not perfect, but came out reasonably well. Second example, James knows this one. Well, you both know both of these quite well. Second one is the Balkans. Um, in the Balkans, we applied relatively limited amounts of hard power. We followed it up with UN, European Union, a NATO mission that is still in place. Um, it was a blend of hard and soft power. The Balkans, you guys will remember, 20 years ago were on fire. Right. 4,000 men and boys killed in a couple of days at Srebrenica. Um, today, Genocide. yeah. You got it. Today, the siege of Sarajevo, today, 
when there's a dispute in the Balkans, they don't reach for a hunting rifle. They reach for a phone to call Brussels to come and negotiate. So we can do this. Uh, the examples you gave, however, are not good ones. You know, I, I, um, I think it's my own view uh, that, that I think James shares it. and Maybe you do, too. The Trump policies did just such terrible, terrible damage. And I wonder how repairable some of it is, how much we can convince our allies and our adversaries that uh, the American word matters, the challenge, challenges we will rise to. How is Biden doing on that and how big is the uh, is the task? I think he's doing well. And part of the reason is he's deeply experienced, unlike the Trump administration, which came in with you know, basically a pickup team at almost every level. They certainly weren't expecting to win. Joe Biden's team is everybody stepping up a notch. In other words, Tony Blinken goes from being the deputy secretary of state under President Obama to now he's the secretary of state. Um, you see that that same, well, Joe Biden was the vice president. Now he's the president. My good friend Lloyd Austin was four-star General Austin, now he's the Secretary of Defense. So A, these are very experienced people. B, they are very well known around the circuit. They have high credibility. Number three, it's a very collegial group. It's a no drama kind of crowd. And the international world appreciates that. And finally, policy-wise, we're moving to reinstate things like our engagement in climate, the Paris Accord, we're back into it as we should be. We've appointed John Kerry to kind of shepherd that, an individual of real stature internationally. So it's both the the, the optics, if you will, the, the, the individuals selected, but it's also the policies that we're now adopting. So I think they're off to a good start, and obviously it's very early days. James. Uh, just like a comment, I'm married to a Croatian, so I'm familiar with the Balkans. I did and, not know that. And, and, and Bismarck, who I've really kind of come to admire in many ways, said the next war would be started by some damn fool thing in the Balkans. And of course, he was right. It was I some know. damn fool thing in the Balkans. No, you know, August 1914, back to where we started, was it's like the South China Sea now. You can see right, it, it coming. Right. Yeah. The lights are going out all over Europe. So, right. so Admiral, all of our education, and we talk about the Atlantic and the Pacific, and we study it, and we learn history, and it's the largest ocean in the world, and the second largest, and everything else. I, I tend to think from reading your book, you think the Arctic and the Indian Ocean might be as relevant as the Atlantic and the Pacific Ocean going forward. Could you expand on that a little bit for us, please, sir? I can, sir. These are both zones of immense potential which have been largely untapped. Neither has experienced war. I mean, you could, you could walk across the Mediterranean stepping on the bones of sailors. Same with the North Atlantic, same with much of the Pacific. Neither the Indian nor the Arctic Oceans have experienced war. Um, thirdly, these are two bodies of water that are geographically going to be hinges in the developing geopolitics of this century, the Indian Ocean, because of how it is parked between China and China's objectives. You know, China's strategy is one belt, one road. I always say it's got one problem, and that's India, because India sits athwart 
those sea lanes of communication. So Indian Ocean, critical in the great game between US, India, China, and then to the north, kind of the same thing applies. Here you've got Russia on one side of the Arctic, and on the other, what do you have? Five NATO nations, Canada, United States, Denmark by virtue of Greenland, Iceland and Norway, and two close NATO partners, Sweden and Finland. So up there, when you conjoin the fact that global warming is melting the ice, it's gonna open up vast troves of natural resources and shipping lanes. There's gonna be a lot of dynamic up there between NATO and Russia and a lot of dynamic in the Indian Ocean between India, China, US and Australia, by the way. So those are two bodies of water that have been kind of, if you will, backwaters, despite the fact that the Indian Ocean is vast, third largest ocean after Atlantic and Pacific. But until now, the gaze of human competition has not turned to them. It is coming. Well, if you want to know the, if you want to further appreciate the relevance of India, read 2034. But uh, uh, Admiral, one final question. Uh, you served, uh, I believe, as an assistant to Donald Rumsfeld at one point. I knew Don Rumsfeld in his first incarnation where I thought he was, he was I didn't necessarily agree with him and he could be arrogant, but he was one of the most impressive, smartest guys I'd ever seen in government. I think the second act was kind of a shame. I think it kind of changed the Donald Rumsfeld legacy. Is that, is that unfair? I think history will be the best judge of that as we get further from the events of Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, but I'll say this about him. Here's my trajectory. The guy promoted me to Ensign the day I graduated from Annapolis in 1976, and he pinned on my fourth star when, in 2006. Now, never yeah. laid eyes on him in the interim, but talk about longevity. That's kind of my point, Al. Hard to find another figure in American history with more impact, longer period of time, other than a, a handful of presidents and a, a George Marshall and a Colin Powell or two. Yeah. So he's got longevity. He's got experience. I think history will judge how he comes out. But I'll tell you this, from having spent two plus years around him, uh, 12 to 18 hours a day, effectively as his military chief of staff, hard boss. I mean, toughest boss I ever worked for. Talk about a guy with an eye for a flaw. Brilliant, smart, experienced, and dedicated to the country. Those are pretty good qualities. Um, let's, let's give it a decade and look back on the accomplishments across the 50-year spectrum of his career. So, Admiral, I'm forced to ask you this. How does history regard the Iraq war well? Right, let's wait for the verdict 10 years from now. Okay, let's wait for the verdict. But give me how history's verdict will be more favorable than the verdict we have now. Yeah, and you can dispute this, but I'll give you the counterfactual. It would be, say okay. we hadn't gone in there, say Saddam Hussein were running the country. Right about now, he'd be dying of, you name it, prostate cancer, whatever. And he'd be handing over the keys to that kingdom to, uh, you remember them, Kasim and Hasim, his two psychopathic right, right. sons, who would right. drive around Baghdad, pulling women off the street, taking them back, raping them, and then tossing them out the doors of the palace. This was not a good situation under Saddam Hussein. Is it gonna be better in a more pluralistic, with Shia and Sunni and Kurd working together? So far, doesn't look great. Uh, and you may be correct, that it turns out 
very badly and Iraq, which was always a dream of the British to put it together, kind of finally splits into three different competing entities. We don't know. But my counterfactual would be Iraq wasn't exactly Switzerland when we rolled in there. No, it wasn't. Uh, but, you know, we will see. I, I just want to say to everyone out there, you've got to read 2034. Uh, uh, your co-author is Elliot Ackerman. And, uh, a Marine. And I, Don't forget it. My co-author is a Marine. Yeah, <laughs> yes. And I want to tell you, when you get to page 200 or whatever it is, if you're not scared, then I'll tell you, you're a, you're a braver person than I am. Admiral, this has really been such yeah. an honor to have you. Thank you so much. And we look forward to seeing you again. So, so appreciate it. I love your story about Hong Kong Harbor. And you're right. When I went to Hong Kong, I couldn't believe there was a place that was that, that, that Harvard that was that beautiful, oh. you know. Flying yeah. in there, wow. Okay, thanks again, thank, Admiral. Yeah, I got one thanks, last sir. thing to say, which sure. is, James, thank you for your service. And Al Hunt, thank you for your service as a journalist. We don't thank our journalists enough for bringing us the truth, telling us what's real and what isn't. I honor the profession of journalism as surely as I do that of the military. Well, thank and you. you have great experience in both. You're not only one of the most honored and decorated uh, military leaders of all times, but you're one heck of a journalist. I used to read you when I, you know, I still read you in Bloomberg when I worked for Bloomberg and you're in the New York Times and you've been on M NBC. So, uh, you know, our profession has been elevated uh, when you retired Absolutely. from the military. So well, thank you. I, I just one thing I say, I was reading it about your family and I, part of your family was uh, Greeks that grew up in Turkey and you have to know diplomacy <laughs> if you're a Greek that grew up in Turkey. Oh, wow. <laughs> so true. Wow. It takes so some true. diplomatic skill to do that. <laughs> Wow. Thank you. Thank you again. It's, you've been a great guest. Take That's care. My Thank, honor. You, sir. Thank you, Admiral. Okay. Thanks, Thank you, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. And now a quick point we want to make. Food's got to be fun and delicious. It's a rare combination, but you can just ask my grandson, Kai. And at any age, James, you and I know you won't be able to get enough of our favorite snack breakfast and all-around delicious treat Magic Spoon cereal. Zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, only four net grams of carbon each serving. It's only 140 calories a serving. It's keto, gluten-free, granite-free, soy-free, low-carb, and GMO-free. You can get a variety pack or build your own box customized with your own flavors of cocoa, fruity, frosted, peanut butter, blueberry, and cinnamon. James, I know you love to put those packages together. Right, I, I, I do. And, you know, most great wines are blends. If you buy a great bottle of, you know, Chateau Lafitte, it's, it's you know, I don't know, 70% Cabernet, but they, they have Cabernet Franc. They have, you know, Merlot, or they have any number of things. And, and what winemakers have learned is that you can tease out more taste than a blend. And what I like to do with Magic Spoon is use some, like, different combinations because I think it expands the flavor profile. And what I really do like about this this product is it, it it's not something that is good for you that you have to gut through it. It's actually very tasty and, and with, with a little creativity you can make it even more tasty. It's one of those rare things that's good for you and also you like. Doesn't happen very often. Go to magicspoon.com slash warroom to grab your delicious cereal and try it today. Be sure to use our promo code WARROOM at checkout to save five dollars off your order. Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. 
Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash warroom and use the code warroom to save five bucks off the price. Thank you, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode. All right, James, now we go to our listener questions. Always good. Our answers usually are okay. Uh, I want to start. We're going to start off with two South Dakota questions, believe oh, okay. it or not. Dave in South Dakota says that he's a son, immigrant, descendants on both sides of the family, settled there, but his engineering career eventually took him to Seattle. But his question is, what I call the Midwest, North Dakota, South Dakota, Iowa, Nebraska, was dominated or at least heavily represented by Democrats not that long ago. Which of those states, he wants you to say South Dakota, I suspect you're not, will be the first to elect a statewide Democrat again? So the choice of South Dakota, Nebraska, North South Dakota. South Dakota, North Dakota, Iowa, Nebraska. Uh, but I'd say Iowa. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, and I, you know, things, the, the, the ground can shift there pretty good. I don't think, I don't see the ground shifting in North Dakota, Nebraska anytime soon. And South Dakota is hard to see. Although both South Dakota and North Dakota are, are really prosperous in the, in the eastern part of, of, of each state. Yeah, and they, I, I I would defer to 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 locals, but there's there's a lot of high tech educated people uh, in in eastern South Dakota and eastern North Dakota. So I I I, I, I wouldn't say it's hopeless. I right? had Tom Daschle, you know, with George McGovern. I mean, there's some been some of the who was the uh, like the Lebanese, the Jim Averesk. Yeah, he was quite a. You knew him, didn't you? He, I knew him well. He was quite. We lived in the same building. He was quite a character. No, but I, I, and and, and North Dakota had Ken, had Ken, 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 yeah. Ken Conrad. Uh, uh, you know, and I Quentin mean, Burdick, and, yeah, and yeah. who uh, who was the other Senator Dorgan? He was a good guy. Brian Dorgan was a good yeah. yeah Ken, Ken, Senator Conrad's great Ken, guy. Great guy and great baseball fan. Uh, so yeah. no, uh, but I, I think the tides. It's going to take a while to turn back. I agree with you on Iowa, though. Iowa is not has not moved as far right as people suspect. Obama carried it handily. Uh, in 2018, they won three of the four congressional seats. They ran a good guy for governor, the Democrats, but he was a terrible candidate. And, uh, you know, the current governor's doing a pretty lousy job. Maybe we'll see. Second question from South Dakota. Uh, this is it. Actually, it's from John, who is in Sea Ranch, California, but he wants to know why is it legal for a billionaire to rent South Dakota's National Guard and send them to the border? These people are scared. You know, I'm not sure it is legal. I really have serious questions whether it is legal. Governor has a lot of authority to send uh, his or her National Guard to places, but to have a privately financed National Guard, I don't know what South Dakota law is. I can't imagine uh, that it en envisions that, and it's certainly as unethical as you could possibly imagine. I don't know who this guy is. What kind of human being did that have that kind of money? I'm sure he made it honestly. He lives in what, Tennessee too. What 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 of all of the things that you have? All right, with, with unvaccinated third world people and people like starvation and everything. Why would you spend your money on sending the South Dakota National Guard to the border, even if it was legal? I mean, it, 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 I'd love to just get inside that guy's mind, but no, I gotta, you don't. 
No, you no, don't, no, James. Probably no, don't. No, 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 you don't. No, probably not. <laughs> it's just like you trying. don't. You don't want to. You know, if you waited through his deepest thoughts, you wouldn't get your ankles wet. Maybe he's a, a very conservative religious guy, and probably very legitimate conservative. You know religious organization that distribute food to people? I, I don't well, know. then, then I good. Don't. Use it for that. Uh, but you're right. Yeah. All right, James, this is a challenge for you. This is a direct challenge to you, and it's from Mickey in Denver, Colorado. He said, I right. always listen to your podcast, but he says he's close to unsubscribing because he's tired of rants about the more extreme left. I have a 20-something daughter in L.A., and I know her friends, and they're not repelled by people like AOC. They are repelled by the Bidens and the Harrises in the middle. My main point is, and I'm quoting from Mickey, Democrats suck. It's great to say Rubio and DeSantis should be beatable, but unfortunately, I don't see how, given the terrible ground campaigns Democrats run, it can be done. So real Mickey back in, James. All right. So, well, Mickey, thank you for listening to the show. And, you know... At some point, you're going to have to decide, maybe the show is not for you. If you really think the problem in Florida is we don't canvas enough, okay, that, that, that opinion that you have, it's not going to be an opinion that's going to be shared by the host of the show. And that is always the, the when I, and I'm a liberal, okay, let's be very clear here. I am not a leftist in, in, uh, you know, look, my my children are way, but my, my oldest daughter's way to the left of me. That that's not unusual, where people's younger kids come home and they can and they say, "Oh my God, you can't believe how how." how. Well, yeah, that's that that, but that's not all young people. That's a select group of young people. But I I, I got to tell you, I I hope you continue to listen to the show. Uh, you come from a great city. I, I, I love Denver, but I just don't think the problem that we have in Florida is, is a lack of canvassing. Yeah. No, I think you're right. And I would say to Mickey, I too hope you'll still, still listen to the show and write in when you disagree with us. Look at your home state and Michael Bennett and John Hickenlooper and the, and, and the, and the terrific approach. members of Congress that have been elected uh, uh, from that state. They are, they really are, I'm sorry, in the uh, Pelosi, uh, Biden, uh, Obama, Clinton mold. But anyway, all right. I also want Mickey to talk to Julie in Livermore, California, who says, thanks for Politics War Room podcast. I've learned so much from both of you and your guests. And her question is, there's going to be a recall in California in September. Would you explain to your audience how recalling Governor Newsom and replacing him with a Republican colleague could change the balance in the, balance in the U.S. Senate? It's very concerning, as Dianne Feinstein is 88 years old. You just nailed it, Julie. It would be for it would be a scary proposition for Democrats if a Republican with the authority to appoint a senator if there's a vacancy is elected in California, not to mention what the policies might do to Californians. Gavin Newsom has sometimes been clumsy, but he's done a pretty darn good job on COVID in a state that's been been uh, stricken very badly. Uh, I think this is not uh, like Gray Davis in 2003. Uh, I think that uh, Newsom will win the recall. It's a totally unnecessary expenditure of funds. Uh, but I think uh, on September 15th, 2021, uh, Gavin Newsom will still be the governor of California. Hey, all right. This is just the rich California Democratic consultants getting ridiculously rich. Right. I mean, if you, if, you, if you want to be in politics and you want to make money, go to California, dude. They, they, they make more money on these ballot things and recall elections and God knows what not than, than, than you can imagine. This is a statistic 
that I, I, I read, and our viewers can, our listeners can check it out, but I think it's right. The California state budget surplus is higher than the entire state budgets of all but four states. So we're, we're treated to this thing that California is this massively incompetent, you know, bureaucracy that just bleeds money and has no sense of fiscal responsibility. Well, the, the actually the fiscal condition of California is, is more than sound. I mean, even I, who like big public spending projects and everything else, maybe I ought to give some of it back. Yeah. They had a $73 billion surplus. Well, Julie, don't worry. Gavin Newsom is going to stay in office. This is uh, the next one's from Maria. Maria, I'm going to ask this question, but if you want to get another one, you better tell us where you're from. She's going to. She asks, "What's it going to take to institute term limits for Supreme Court justices?" This is in the in the wake of Merrick Garland and uh, and Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett slipping through. Let me tell you something, Maria. Whatever the merits, whatever the merits. A, it's not going to happen, and B, if you're a Democrat, you don't want it to happen right now because the youngest members of that Supreme Court all happen to be right-wing Republicans. So I'm not yeah. sure whether I'm for it or against it, but it just ain't going to be. Yeah, what, is that, what is it, two-thirds to Congress and three-fourths of state legislatures? Yeah, yeah. yeah it ain't going to happen. Yeah, so, exactly. Uh, you know, I, I, I know. Let's talk about pigs flying. David in Livingston, New Jersey, James, wants to know, why can't the Democrats get creative uh, and pass the Voting Rights and the for the People's Act, uh, even as proposed by Manchin, pass it through bucket, budget reconciliation. I don't think you can do that. You can't. Budget <laughs> right. reconciliation it's has right. to have a fiscal impact. Right. And they tried to do it, or Bernie Sanders tried to do it with a minimum wage, arguing that it raised more revenues or whatever have you, and that was thrown out. There is no way that this, right. this, this uh, fits. They're going to have to do it by making an exception. Uh, to the filibuster rule, because you're not going to change the filibuster rule. I still think that's where they'll end up. I think that's where Joe Manchin will end up, and Joe Manchin will be uh, an historic figure if he does that. I think so, too. And, and uh, you know, just some of the stuff, I mean, it, it, it may or may not be a good idea, but it's not going to happen. Right, I mean, right. We would, I think that D.C. statehood, if all of them, probably has the best chance of actually happening sometime in, in the near future. And that's highly... One final question is from Bob in Greenville. We just have a little bit of time, but this is down your alley. Explain Kentucky. Two of the worst Republican senators and yet a Democratic governor with progressive tendencies. How, how does that happen? But what he really wants to know is Charles Booker stand any chance, Charles Booker against Rand Paul and the upcoming midterms. First of all, I, I assume he's from Greenville, South Carolina, which I think is one, is. Of, the most, is, is one of the best mid-sized cities in America. Oh, I mean, boy, that place is amazing, man. And it's, they, they it's put, changed. It's happening. Right, it's really a happening place. Uh, explain Kentucky. Well, all I can say is when I went to work in Kentucky in 1987, they told me that the state was about uh, gambling, bourbon, and tobacco. And I, so I love Kentucky, as you can imagine. Um, there is a, it is possible to, for a governor to get elected that's still in particular place in western Kentucky that's still some holdover registered Democrats. It, it just, I don't see Kentucky happening. You don't see Booker level. happening, right? I, okay. I mean, I wish I did. I'll do anything I can to help, but that's that, that's a that's a tough nut, a real tough nut. I think you're right. Keep those questions coming. We love them. We apologize for not getting to all the good ones because there were so many. And tell us where you're from.
All right, James, now for the outrage of the week. Uh, The Washington professional football team and its owner, Dan Snyder, not only have become an embarrassment to a town that once revered them, they also were accused of very serious multiple offenses of sexual abuse and harassment over the years. The National Football League promised a thorough investigation into this really, really serious stuff. Instead, it was a sham, or as the great sports writer Sally Jenkins wrote, it was just like the franchise's culture rotten. Snyder was fined $10 million chump change for the billionaire mogul. His wife supposedly is in charge of the team. Sure. Worse, these findings basically are a cover-up. Little transparency, no written report, no specific answer. The charges against Snyder himself, no conclusions. The NFL swept it under the rug. James, I was a Washington season ticket holder for 17 years, starting when our friend Norv Turner was the coach. With my wife, I even sat in the owner's box a number of occasions. My son liked using our seats to take a friend. No more. I stopped four or five years ago. I don't plan to ever go back again, but we still have the Washington Nationals, James. Well, it's not much giving up the Washington Redskins. They ain't worth a shit. Okay, in addition to everything well, it's like else. Well, it's like what you give up for Lent. Right, but you don't yeah, you give up for Lent. <laughs> you, know, you give up something you, you, don't, you don't like. Right. Okay, <laughs> I, I, that's the kind of thing. I, I guess my outrage is it goes back to, like, DeSantis in the Florida legislature, past thing to get attitudes of, of students and teachers. Now, a... a, a, a According to John Chait, as you know, who are we all the time? An idiot by the name of Eric Kaufman wrote in the National Review that that the, the government should enforce ideological neutrality uh, on campuses because a survey said that Ivy League women overwhelmingly didn't want to date someone who liked Donald Trump. I, I, this is how insane. These people are, and then in the same news cycle, you have Tucker Carlson talking about having teachers having to wear body cams to see what they're teaching. Now, okay, I, this is sounds like it's a conspiracy theory. It might be, but the facts are these Republicans hate education. They hate educated people. And, you know, one of the problems is that education leads to thinking. And thinking is going to lead you to be vaccinated, and thinking is going to lead you to think Trump was a raving idiot who tried to rip this country apart. And I think the way that they see themselves stand in political power is stop people from being educated. I, I can't imagine anything else that would cause this kind of, uh, I guess the word about you is Orwellian, spying on people because they some he doesn't think that, you know, Trump voters can get laid by Ivy League females. I mean, that's how stupid it is. I, I, I just, you're right. Uh, it's, it's incredible. It's, okay. It's, it's, it's stunning. It, it, you know, it you're is. right. You just marvel at it. By the way, they get back in power. They're going to do all this stuff. Absolutely. This Absol- is not, yeah. And not only can they do all this stuff, but they can stop other things from happening if they win back uh, the House and the Senate in 2022. So it matters three years from now, it matters a year from now. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics World Rome with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicsworldrome at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. 
following this episode, we would really appreciate it if you check out the link to our sponsor, Magic Spoon. We really thank you for supporting them. When you do, you help make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. And please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning.